You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I'm joined by Raman Moodley. Hi, Raman. How are you going? Okay, yourself. Nice to, uh, nice to be here. Raman, on Max's Island, we love to hear stories from our guests about that time in their life where they made that decision to do something, where perhaps they had been thinking about it for some time and, and then the opportunity arose, or they feel like that it was time to take a risk and, and do something different or life just threw them a challenge. And that challenge meant that they were ab- able to do something different as well. Raman, what's your story today of a time when that happened to you? Well, my story begins back in South Africa. <clears throat> so um, obviously I had a crazy childhood and by some lucky gift or whatever, I ended up with this amazing career opportunity working in uh, the bank back in South Africa. And, you know, I, I started as a teller and worked my way all the way up to, you know, what I thought was successful and success. And by the age of, I'd say 35, even though I was doing so great career-wise, there was something in the back of my mind that always told me that, you know what, this is not it, that this can't be it. And it kept on, you know, like just, it kept on just being there in the back of my mind. And I had no idea like what was the answer, but all I knew was that this is not it. And five years later, we got an opportunity to come to the U S to immigrate to the U.S. And it was just a, a visa without any job or anything. It was just go to the U.S. and start a new life. So, Raman, was and, that, can I, can I ask, was, yeah. you said we, so that's your family? Yeah, my wife and my two kids. So at the time, my youngest was four years old and my uh, older son was uh, 12 years old. So that's a massive decision to make for, for the entire family, not just yourself. There's, there's others that you're bringing along the journey with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I think one of the best things that happened was that everybody was so busy. 
we, we had so much going on. And at that moment, there was like crazy things happening in the country. And, you know, everything just seemed so hectic and chaotic. And that maybe was the good thing that it never allowed us to sit down and truly understand what it was that we were doing. Because if we had to really sit down and figure out everything, we would have been like, no, this is crazy. But and that was, I don't know, fortuitous, fortuitous that we kind of just jumped into it. But then the, the, the urge and, 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 and the compulsion to move was far greater because we knew what, was, what we were doing wasn't what we should be doing. I mean, material, I mean, attaining material things and, you know, not, not actually being there for each, for each other and for our kids, that was far greater, you know, than all the material things that we could, we could, we could attain. And so then the opportunity came and it was, yeah, it just makes sense. We don't know what the hell it is that we need, but we just know what we don't need. Yes. And that's when we said, yeah. So, so which part of, of the US did you go to? So um, my wife's aunt um, lives in California. So that was the logical, you know, move to, to, to get some sort of support and whatever. And uh, we moved here and I mean, absolutely. I mean, when we came here, it was, it was, it was life-changing. It was also scary as hell because both of my wife and I were, set career-wise in South Africa and now you're coming into this unknown where nobody knows you and you have absolutely nothing and you're thrown out of your element and my first job was at Home Depot and I mean from this amazing career in the bank as a business analyst as a marketing manager as you know product development specialist and everything and now I'm walking the floor in a, in a, in a Home Depot and just, you know, speaking to people and asking, you know, getting $25 for every appointment that I can set up from being this really senior person. And that was probably one of the best things that happened to me because it brought me back down to earth. And created connection with people. Yes. But, but, but more importantly, created connection with myself. Right. Because... Because what happened is that here's the crazy part. So every day I go home and I tell my wife, because I mean, coming from South Africa, I grew up in apartheid by the age of 19, Nelson Mandela, Mandela got released. So I grew up in segregation. I grew up in a pure Indian neighborhood. Yes. I, my, my first real job was in the bank, in the Indian community. And whenever a white person would walk into the, through the door, I used to be petrified to help them because they They'd, they'd see that I'm stupid. Yes. Because I'm supposed to be inferior. Yes. And I believed it through the conditioning. And now I'm working in, the, you know, I progressed in the bank and everything, but I still didn't completely understand what they did to me psychologically. So here I am in, in Home Depot in America thinking I'm all good and I'm all well. And I understand everything. And every day I go home and I tell my wife, oh, I spoke to this Vietnamese guy. Oh, I spoke to this Jamaican guy. I spoke to this black guy from... 
And then she's like, where the hell are they sending you? And I'm like, no, they're sending me to Walnut Creek. And she says, like, but that's the whitest community in, in the whole of California. Like, why are you only speaking with non-white people? Why aren't you speaking to any white people? Right. And that's when the penny dropped. Okay. It goes back to everything, to my yes. childhood, to everything. That I still had this fear. I still had this apprehension. And then obviously my wife and I, this is how we are. It's challenge each other. That's that's why we got to where we are. It's just challenging. And it's like, okay, one white person a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, interesting that you say that. And, and it's some simple practices. A, a, a very good friend of mine who is a diversity expert and spends her life going around the world creating inclusive communities and, and promoting inclusivity for, for diversity. And, and her advice to a lot of people is very simple, similar to that. You know, and, and I've heard her say it many times that, you know, if you're going to set a, a New Year's resolution, set the, the resolution that you meet five different groups of people that you would not normally meet over the course of the next year. And that will yeah. broaden your diversity mind and your your opportunity to understand others so much 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 more easily. And it's just a really simple practice. So what you were doing is, as you say, a very simple thing, but it can have profound effects. Yeah, and, and it's so true because, I mean, it taught me so much about myself, thinking that I was fine, thinking that, yeah, South Africa integrated, I was fine, you know. That 20 years in South Africa, it, it, it brought me to where I needed to be when deep down inside I had no understanding of what was actually inside my mind, inside of my heart, inside of everything. Yes. You know? And then the beautiful part is it's like, okay, so one white person. And then before it was like, okay, fine. And then four months later, I meet this absolutely amazing person who I, who I would have never sat down with. You know, this white young gentleman. And he has become like this really, really meaningful, powerful connection in my life. Had I stayed in my comfort zone and not pushed myself out there and held on to those previous anger, I would have never had the opportunity to, I mean, I, I would have never taken the opportunity to to connect with him. And in connecting with him, I then found more of myself. It's funny you say that uh, it's about taking the opportunities. I think every day we're presented with opportunities, but often we're blind to them or, as you pointed out, nervous about them. And it's the, the key is to take those opportunities. And yeah. sometimes you are outside your comfort zone and it's a, it's a risk in your own mind. but. Yeah the benefits are always there. Yeah, so, so true. And, and, and the crazy thing is that, that, that conditioning, how it traps you yes. and it keeps you in that state of fear and, 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 and anxiety and all that kind of things. Because, I mean, one of the most difficult things I had to do in my life even though my life was so crazy, but one of the most difficult things was actually moving outside of my old Indian neighborhood, moving into a white neighborhood. That, and, and that is the craziness about how we get separated from each other, how we disconnect from each other. 
Yeah, and a lot of the time that's probably, again, probably not a deliberate thing but more of a knee-jerk reaction of, of being with within that comfort area with people that you know look like you, sound like you, act like you, eat like you, all of those things. And so you think that's where I, I should belong. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, then when, when that opportunity <clears throat> presented itself and uh, then that led to another amazing opportunity and a few months later, uh, the, the gentleman's name is Josh and he invites me to a school in Oakland. It's one of the poorest communities, well, one of the poorest schools in the community. And he specializes with, with kids that, you know, most of them are in really tough environments, come from really, really, really hard environments, dealing with poverty, dealing with crime, dealing with lots of tough issues. And some of them are in foster homes and all that kind of thing. Then he specialized just, you know, with these kids. And he has a classroom just dedicated to these kids where no other teacher wants to, well, they don't think they can teach these kids anything. They, they cannot deal with these kids. And he just looks after these kids. And he asked me to come and speak to, to these kids for an hour. Why did he want you to speak to them? Was that something that he was trying to expose those kids to? Something different? Well, by then, Josh and I, it, it was crazy because we were having these profound conversations, you know, about our upbringing, about the way we see in the world, about how this world could be better, how there could be more love, how there could be more kindness how they could be more acceptance. And these are the conversations that we spoke about. Yes, we spoke about our childhood. I spoke about South Africa and how it messed me up and how it made me strong, about community, how I understood community to be. And that was profoundly important in my life, community. And all these wonderful things. And, and when we spoke, and that just made sense to him that you know these kids need to hear the story. And the beautiful part is I was able to convey a message that showed these kids that they are no different to me, that I'm no different to them. They just wanted the message of how did I get out? How did I escape? And that's exactly the same message I wanted when I was in that harsh environment, in all that pain, in all that suffering. I just wanted that message. How, do you, how did you step out? How did you change? How, what happened? And that's all they wanted. It's like, I, and here's the thing, is like everybody looked at these kids like they wanted to be there. And just like me, I didn't want to be there. It's interesting you say that because probably there's also been, had been a lot of people in those children's lives who had said, this is what you need to do to change. And that doesn't work. As you rightfully pointed out, they need to work out for themselves what they need to do to change. And the best way to do that is to see examples, listen to their peers and listen to people like yourself who have a story, a story of change, and then they can you know, comprehend that 
in their own context and drive themselves because it, you know driving from within is is the only way to really facilitate that change that you need to yeah yeah so true i mean exactly and 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 it's so true what you're saying is that they need to see that it's possible they yes. need to see those examples you know it's one thing telling it's like one thing oh i actually see that because as a kid I used to go to the movies and the movies like Gandhi or Steve Biko or the Rockies or whatever, those were, that was my inspiration. Like that was my vision, my vision board or whatever. Yes. It's like, it is possible. They can do it. I can do it. And, and, and it's so much more powerful when you're actually sitting with somebody and they can see it and feel it and touch it. It's not something even on the big screen. It's right in front of me. You know, it's another human being connecting with me, loving me, caring about me to come and spend time with me. That first meeting was supposed to go for an hour. How long did it go for? That meeting ended up going out for three hours. <laughs> and even more crazy was that after three hours, the kids were begging me not to leave. Fantastic. And that changed my life in such a profound way. You know, to connect with some other human being on such a profound level, to have a positive influence on another human being on such a level. I, there's nothing apart from, you know, my family, my, my kids being born, meeting my wife, and all that kind of thing. But apart from that, there was nothing else that compares. And your friend Josh, what did he think? What did he say? He loved every second. He kind of, because he, that's why he wanted me there, because he thought it was going to be an impact, yes. right? But not on that level. Both of us were blown away. Because, I mean, like some of the kids were even like, there's only you're only living on one condition and that condition is that you have to come back. Yes. I mean, for another human being to, to connect with you on that level, another child. You said they wouldn't let you go unless you came back. You went back, obviously, yes. and continued yes. the journey. Well, because I have a full-time job and all that, so my mission in life became that that's where I need to be. That answer that I didn't have back in South Africa, I know what I'm doing in South Africa is not what I should be doing. I don't know what I should be doing. In that second, I knew what I should be doing with my life. How did you then take advantage of that moment? How did you, that feeling that you had, that emotional connection, that, that inner feeling that that environment, that situation created, did you really know what to do next or did you just allow it to happen? You see, because here's the crazy part in my life is that the way I got to where I am is not the conventional way, right? So I told you that back in South Africa, I was this amazing guy, I had this amazing career and whatever, but I only had a grade seven education and nobody knew this. Coming from where I came from, you needed to do what you needed to do to survive. And I did a hell of a lot of wrong things because of my childhood, not blaming my childhood, but because where I came from. 
right? So, uh, and, and, and I was an alcoholic by the age of, well, I started. Well, the first, the first drink I had was when I was seven years old and my father thought it was my birthday and he thought it would be cute that he'd he make me drunk. So that's the kind of dysfunctionality I come from. I mean, just to give you, like I said, just to give you everybody context of where I come from. When I was nine years old, the happiest day of my life, until I met my wife at 20 years old. So from nine years old, the happiest day of my life was when my father got stabbed to death in front of me. That's unbelievable. You say it was the happiest day of your life. Why? Because I, I, for a child to have that perspective, there's obviously got to be some, I mean, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, not just us, my mom, growing up in poverty, not not having shoes when I, I used to go to school bare feet. I mean, I, I, I had a really crazy life, you know? And like I said, I mean, nine years old, the abuse that I endured was 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 crazy. I mean, I I I, I was contemplating suicide before I even knew what suicide was. Because of that situation, that led you to have to leave school early? Yep. So I dropped out in, 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 in grade, grade seven because, I mean, I, I, I went to school. I, food was, I mean, I didn't have food. I didn't know where I was going to sleep. I was like totally messed up. And then by the age, like I said, I mean, eight to seven years old, I get introduced to alcohol. My mom sells alcohol out of our house to survive. So I'm surrounded. I mean, guys would be selling drugs in our yard. So this is the environment I grew up in, you know, and it's normal to sell guys to be using and selling right in, in front of me. And I mean, this is a kid growing up. Yes. You know, and then by 12 years old, 13 years old, it was like, no, this is not life. This is crazy. I mean, like you said, I mean, I was contemplating suicide forever. And Dropped out of school, making money anywhere I can. I was earning more money when I was 14 years old than when I got my real job. <laughs> so obviously alcohol and all that played a huge part in my life. So by the age of 19, I was, I was like an alcoholic from the age of 12. So got a fake high school degree, diploma, and I managed to get into the bank. From there, I found out that I'm actually intelligent. I'm not stupid like my father told me I was. Mm. I just kept on getting promoted. Eventually, I became assistant marketing manager with my standard, with my grade seven. And the only way I could become marketing manager was if I got my degree. So I took my fake high school diploma, went to a legitimate college, got admitted and got my degree. Fantastic. <laughs> so the kids in Oakland that you're telling the story to, they obviously genuinely understood what you went through because a lot of those kids, I guess, gone through a similar thing where people didn't believe in them. Yeah. yeah. And people told them they were stupid. People still tell them they're stupid. That's literally what my father told me every day. 
Yeah. You know? And I believed it. And there was no ways I was going to think I was going to finish school because I was stupid. I mean, that conditioning was so ingrained. And then when I get into the bank and then I'm just doing all these amazing things and I was like, damn, I'm actually good. I'm actually intelligent. You know? And, 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 and then I, I, I go and challenge myself to do the degree and I get the degree. And it's like, wow, I'm actually good. I was intelligent all along. It was all inside of me. I just needed an opportunity to show it to myself. And I was blessed. The opportunity thing keeps coming up, doesn't it? And the fact that um, it is around the self-belief to take those opportunities when, when they're presented. I'm really interested to understand how that incredible upbringing, that life experience, how much of it do you think was the thing that connected with these kids in Oakland? Do you think that they believe that you know, nearly like you were one of them and that was the, yeah. that was the role modeling that they needed? Yeah. So I'm writing my book and every day on the train and the bus, I got a two hour commute, one, one hour on the train and 45 minutes on the bus and every day I meet all these amazing people like I said now I'm, now I'm fine with white people on the bus and the train and I'm writing my book and and every day I'm writing and talking and counseling and everything and the one day this young girl comes up to me and she's like I see you writing what are you writing and I was like okay here's my story and I give it to her in a nutshell and she's like oh tomorrow I have to tell you my story it's not as crazy as your story but it's a, it, 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 it's an important story. I'm like, come on, don't, don't, don't diminish yours. You know, yeah, I got a crazy story and whatever, but we all got stories, right? So, don't, so t tomorrow, the 30 minutes is yours and you're going to tell me your story. The next day she comes on the bus and she tells me her story and my story doesn't even compare to her story. Mm. And, and, and that's how crazy it is that we don't even see ourselves. Yeah. You know, life doesn't give us that moment to take that, you know, take that breath and, and, and just reflect and understand who we are. And I think in that moment with those kids, they, they, maybe it sparked something in them to say, you know, look at yourself. Look at your pain. Look at your struggle. Look at your courage. Look at your resilience. Look at your beauty. Yeah. Raman, from that one experience, and as we sort of wrap up our, our chat and this fascinating story of, of, of your life or a significant part of your life, what else has happened to you in, in this area of supporting children, supporting others with them developing, showing love, growing within themselves? What other things have happened since that first encounter with those students in Oakland? So I've been working on my book and I've been working with Josh and I've been helping Josh and another professor in writing a book, a book uh, and a training guide and a manual for teachers and mentors to, that, that engage and deal with, these, with kids from these environments. And I've been doing this 
out of the love of my heart, out of out of love. And Josh, being the person that he is, is like there's no ways on earth I can take so much from you. And he managed to get me a contract with the school district of Philadelphia. And uh, I actually mentor the life coaches that go into the schools and teach the teachers on how to deal with these kids. And I'm working actively with uh, another professor writing another book on kids in these environments and initiatives on, on uh, well, it's called well restorative justice on how we engage with these children, how we nurture them, how we love them, how we show them that love is the answer and violence is not the answer. And that um, in spite of all the madness and in spite of all the violence that surrounds you, love is always the answer. I'm really pleased that not only are you connecting with individuals, but also being this coach to coaches because the, you're a real expert by experience and so your ability to be able to pass on that experience to others who can really amplify the difference that you can make is also just a, a great gift that you're able to give. So good luck with that project in Philadelphia. I'm sure the students and also the people you're coaching and mentoring will have a profound impact. Raman, I've really enjoyed our chat today. Your story is fascinating. There's been some incredible challenges in your life, but you've come back at the end here to say that it is about love. It is about compassion. It is about being connected to our fellow humans. And you're a fantastic example of how that really works and can make a difference to people's lives. So thank you so much for being on Max's Island. And I hope in the future to get you back when you've when you're launching your book because i'm sure that story would be really interesting for the listeners on max's island so thanks for being on the island today my pleasure thank you so much we spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur oh work and no play and how how it had turned out this way He told me his plan A short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmin track Go it alone No one to blame If he finished Or fell by the way No one's an island But sometimes it's good to pretend
Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing. 